It was quite amazing. It was an October day. It was super cold. But it doesn't matter how experienced you are. Once you step into this new cockpit, there's not even really a seat. Uh, there's no canopy. So it's such a new experience and you feel like you're a student pilot again. So even though you have all this experience, uh, you're sitting there quite nervous until the moment you go up and then all of a sudden it feels like an airplane again. It was the first vintage glider ever judged at Oshkosh. There had been other vintage gliders shown at Oshkosh, and I've been there when there had been, but they never flew. Be a confident pilot and always do the checks step by step. Have a checklist. Please do not memorize the check procedures because eventually we will forget it one day. Hey, Soaring community, welcome back. If it's your first time here, we are happy you joined us for another Soaring Adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. My name is Chuck, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States, and I'm flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. This is episode 91. A big thank you to our newest Patreon pilot, Schuler Heath. We greatly appreciate your support. If you want to support the podcast and become a Patreon pilot, just go to patreon.com slash soaring the sky or of course you click the link in the show notes simon is a glider pilot joining us from the netherlands and a few years ago he started his youtube channel flying simon i'm sure you have seen some of his amazing videos simon's goal is to share the excitement and the wonderful perspective of gliding and this year he hopes to share adventures all over europe from flights in new gliders to the Junior European Championship in Lithuania. Simon chats with us today on the podcast and shares some of his adventures, including the story about one of his YouTube adventures, you may have seen this one, flying in an open canopy vintage glider. And staying on that theme of vintage gliders, we're going to join Bob Armstrong. He joins us for our tips and techniques segment in his hangar where he keeps a 1946 Schweitzer SGU-119. He has actually flown that over Oshkosh. Dale Masters brings us another Soaring Tales with Dale, and we will bring you another Soaring Safety segment, of course, as well. And a brand new segment, that's right, our listener logbook. So let's get this episode launched. Simon, welcome to Soaring the Sky. I'm excited to have you on today. You are otherwise known as Flying Simon on Instagram. How are you? Yeah, thank you so much. I'm fine. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm very honored. Absolutely. It's great to have you on the show. You know, the first thing we always do here on the show is ask our guest pilots to tell us a little bit about their aviation background, of course, and how they got started into soaring. So how did everything get started for you? Oh, yeah. Great question. Uh, I think for as long as I can remember, I always had this soft spot for, for aviation. Uh, and I think it started with my, my grandmother, uh, back when I was very young, she she would always go on these uh, big vacations to the other side of the world, and um, we would always say goodbye or or um, uh, at, at the airport. So we would always go there, and I was always so fascinated by everything that um, that flies. So um, then later on, when I when I came to high school, uh, a friend of mine uh, got into simulators, and, and me too. So we we really got to know everything about aviation. So we knew the, the Boeings, we knew the Airbuses, and we really became these these nerds of, uh, of aviation. And then one of my, my physics teachers said, um, 
hey, maybe you should pick up gliding because you're 14 now and, and you can already start that uh, at 14. And that's when my whole, my whole journey into, uh, into soaring uh, started. And then I'm, I was really hooked into, um, into the sport. And then later on, uh, uh, I had to choose a, a study as well uh, and was still quite in love with aviation and decided to do aerospace engineering. So these days, uh, not only on weekends, I'm uh, busy with airplanes, but also during the weekdays, I, uh, I get to, uh, to focus on them. And yeah, it's been such an incredible journey. The, the people you meet in aviation, uh, we all have this, this common ground on which we, we can connect. Uh, and so I can't see myself uh, stopping with aviation in, in the coming 50 years, probably. Yeah, aviation is an amazing family. It, it is so cool. And it's very cool that you get to do it as your work, too. That, that is awesome. It's so nice that, that these people uh, connect through this, through this passion. It's something amazing. Uh, I, I find that uh, every, every time I am on, a, on the field, uh, you sort of notice this again. You know, looking at your YouTube channel the other day while I was getting ready for this interview, I came across the video of you going up in the glider. Um, I think it was titled The Scariest Flight of My Life. But watching the video, <laughs> you look pretty happy the whole time. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about that day and whether you would consider ever taking one of those open gliders up yourself as a solo? It looked like so much fun. Well, it was. I, I, I must uh, excuse myself for um, playing the, the YouTube algorithm here. Because uh, uh, if you're a YouTuber, then sometimes you, you, you just have to exaggerate. So uh, sometimes even these um, quite normal flights are, are a bit more scary or amazing than they are in, um, in real life. So that's a bit of an exaggeration. But indeed, what you say was such an amazing flight. Uh, it was at a competition in Denmark. And uh, we were flying there for eight days. Uh, but pretty much six or seven days, we only had rain. So we were sitting still on this airfield. And already from day one, we, we were eyeing on this, on this 2G, the, the op completely open glider. And we wanted to make a start on that. So I think it was the, the sixth day, probably, of competition uh, when they were going to fly that thing. So that was the day I was hoping that we would cancel the competition. And it happened. And then we made uh, this flight. It was only two minutes, I think. But uh, it did cost me a few years of my life because it's, uh, it's such an experience and your heart rate goes up so high. It's really incredible. You should, you should try it, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah, it, looks, it does look a bit scary to me. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. once you get up in the air and you, it, it looks like you're sitting on this, like, just single board almost with the seat and you're strapped in. And there's, like, nothing around you. Yeah, that, that must have been crazy. But I'd be willing to try it. It's so it's so um, far from gliding almost. It's almost it almost feels like it's a, a different sport. Wow! Yeah, that 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 was crazy. Speaking of open cockpits, I think you also have a YouTube where you flew in a yellow seventy something old glider. Oh yeah! Can you tell me a little bit about that day and what it's like to fly in a vintage glider? Yeah, but I have to I have to rewind uh, a bit. I think the, the goal when I decided to start the YouTube channel. I thought, what are my what are my goals to this? And I, I liked editing, I liked to, to film and to show uh, my passion to others. Uh, but I thought, when is it a success? Well, if if I get these opportunities to fly amazing types of gliders, uh, I think it would be my goal to fly all these types one day. So that would really be a goal for the channel. And the the owners of the glider, the owners of the of the Gruna Baby, were so kind to to let me fly uh, the airplane and let me film with it. So that was really a good moment for me as well, because then I thought, okay, this, uh, 
makes it a success, I would say. But the flight was was quite amazing. It was an October day. It was super cold. But it doesn't matter how experienced you are. Once you step into this new cockpit, there's not even really a seat. Uh, there's no canopy. So it's such a new experience. And you feel like you're a student pilot again. So even though you have all this experience, uh, you're sitting there quite nervous until the moment you go up. And then all of a sudden, it feels like an airplane again. And a totally incomparable experience, I would say. It's like, I think I, I mentioned this in the video as well. It is the same as uh, driving a motorcycle. So, of course, it's it's comparable to uh, to driving a car on the highway. But being in a car on the highway is being in your own bubble. Uh, whilst driving a motorcycle is this completely different experience. And, yeah, the, the, the two are incomparable, I would say. You did a video also of reacting to an and uh, analyzing glider accidents videos like this are great for other pilots to learn from and i really wish there was more content like this out there or even where there isn't a video of an accident or incident like even pulling up some pictures or images from a written accident report and talking about it you know a lot of this content just stays beneath the surface for a lot of pilots and you know it's always great when influencers and people with an audience like you can put more of this out there yeah, I think, I think uh, uh, that is something we should do more. I think in, uh, even though we should learn from all these mistakes, I think it's still quite the, the go-to reaction to, to rub it under the carpet and, uh, and pretend like it uh, never happened. So I, indeed, I think you make a valid point. We should talk more about these, uh, these accidents. And uh, there's this other YouTuber from New Zealand. I think it's Pure Glide. He's an instructor and he's done these analysis of, of some of the glider accidents that have been uh, online and I really enjoy enjoy watching these uh, but also and this is something I was very scared of in making my own video is that I was a bit scared to jump to conclusions too quickly so I didn't want to uh, uh, to make assumptions too quickly uh, definitely when there's people injured it's, it's really a, a serious case so making these videos can sometimes be uh, a bit edgy uh, but I think indeed we should do a bit more Absolutely. If we can learn from, you know, other mistakes and save a life out there, that is that is what we're trying to do. Yeah, for sure. You know, there was a video. I just watched this one actually pretty recently, but you were live streaming a Condor session with Stefan Longer and another pilot. Do you do Condor quite a bit in the off season? Um, do you think it's a good tool to stay fresh or do you mostly just do it for fun type flights? Yeah, I think it's definitely it's definitely a fun tool. But I think it can help a lot as well. There's not many sports where the winter is just an, an off season, huh? So we uh, there's no not much sports I know that have such a long break in between. So indeed, during that time, I think that Condor can really help you to to refresh yourself, to sort of maintain uh, a currency, and I think it can help really well with knowing a terrain. So if you're going to fly, um, for, for example, at Porta Vesfalica. It's a, uh, an, an area of which I made uh, some videos already, but it's a beautiful ridge uh, in Germany and quite close to the Netherlands. And the first time I went there, I already felt like I knew I had some idea of the, of the area just because we, we already flew there so much on the simulator. So also for terrain recognition is really a, um, a great tool. But for the, the young pilots, I think it's, it's a, a bit more difficult. Uh, it's, a, you have to feel the glider, and with Condor, that's not always always the case. So I would say for for young pilots, uh, I'm not sure 
if it does the job as well. Uh, but definitely for competition pilots, it's uh, a great tool. Do you find that if you play Condor a lot in the off-season that maybe it can negatively impact you in a real glider or any bad habits that you develop? Or do you just see it all as pretty much good practice either during the season or in the off-season? Uh, that's, that's a good question, actually. I think it, it depends. Uh, sometimes when you're flying Condor, uh, the tactic is uh, fly as aggressively as, as you can. And of course, in Condor, there's no problem if you find a thermal at, uh, at 50 meters or maybe 30 meters. Uh, and in real life, I don't think you should uh, you should do that. So it really depends how you look at, at the competition. But um, as, a, as a refresher, sort of to get into your routine, if you also do the same checks on the ground, for example, working off your, your checklists, then uh, it's a great tool to, to maintain your currency. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. So speaking of accidents, what specific incident in the last few years, other than what you've covered in your videos, of course, so far, what stands out to you and what do you think other pilots can learn from? it? Well, I've been flying now for um, for about 10 years and have seen my, my fair share of, uh, of accidents. So luckily, the things that, that have happened to me have always been incidents and uh, with minor damages and, and definitely not with any injuries. Uh, but unfortunately, other pilots around me uh, uh, haven't always been that lucky. Last year, we had uh, a tragic weekend in the Netherlands where, where three pilots, three young pilots uh, lost their lives. And that really made an, an impact on me and I think an impact on, on everyone in the Netherlands. So that was really quite a tough time. But I think it's, it was a good reminder as well that, we, that what we're doing is in no way ordinary. So we... I tend to forget that sometimes. So uh, if I could give some some advice to, to, to some pilots that are listening, uh, there's a, a phase uh, in which also I had the most incidents. Just after your, you pass your license, so you've had all this, all this training from instructors, you've been solo, and now you, uh, you obtain your license, and you feel invincible, right? So it feels like accidents won't happen to you because after all, you have a license now, and you're experienced, so what can go wrong? And that's when I noticed also in myself that I became quite scruffy sometimes, scruffy with, with checklists, scruffy with looking out. And then sometimes you run into these incidents. So noticing, for example, that your belts aren't fixed uh, during the, the winch launch. Or when you're flying a cloud street, I once saw this, this other glider. I saw it really at the last moment. I diverted, he didn't. And I thought, well, what would have happened if... Um, if I didn't see him. So I think it's good sometimes. I think we should see these incidents not as something bad, but as something, these small incidents that as a reminder that, that what we're doing is, is quite strange sometimes. It's quite crazy going up with a glider, flying sometimes for 10 hours. It's something extraordinary that we do, that we are doing. And uh, yeah, we should realize that and stick to our routines, stick to our checklists, and uh, then there should be no problems. Absolutely. Shifting gears here a bit, but before you go soaring, what weather products do you typically look at and how do you incorporate them into your flying? Do you just commit to memory and have a general idea for the day or do you use weather products live in the cockpit and on your flight computer? And, and what is it that you particularly like about one weather product over maybe another weather product? Oh yeah, that's, that's a very relevant question. We, um, I was actually planning to make a video about using live weather in the, in the cockpit. I'm going to experiment with that uh, this season for the first time. But 
Yeah, looking at weather products, I uh, always tend to have a few. These days, I'm using uh, SkySight a lot. Uh, they're also a sponsor of, of the YouTube channel, so uh, I can't not name them uh, here. And they have great features where they also show you where the where the thermals are en route. So you can plan your task with, with uh, SkySight, and then it shows you the weather that you will encounter en route. So I really like that. And uh, you asked whether I do it in the morning or, or the day before? Yeah. yeah so I, I always plan to do it the day before, but then it ends up doing it, uh, doing it in the morning. But what I think is the most important thing when you're looking at the weather uh, is to sort of make a second step. So you can look at the weather and say, okay, the, the cloud base is going to be at 1,500 meters, and this is going to be the wind direction, and this is going to be the end of the thermal period. But it's important to make the second step and ask yourself, okay, how is this going to impact my flying? If the cloud base is at 1,500 meters, how will I adjust my high pants, for example? What speed am I going to fly? If the wind is coming from this direction, uh, what can I expect on the second leg or what can I expect on, on the third leg? And if thermals are going to end at six, uh, at what time do I really have to start my task if I want to do uh, 500 kilometers today? So that's something that, that really helped me to make that second step. And then it's also easier to remember these forecasts because you already made your plan. You already know what you're going to do. Uh, and if these things change, then it's also easier to, to adapt. What's the most interesting or memorable land out that you've had? It could be good or bad. Ooh. Um, well, we talked about incidents uh, a moment ago. And I was in this, uh, let's do two. Let's do a negative one and a, and a positive one. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, I think it was my third, third cross-country flight or something. And I was flying a beautiful Discus 2. And I did this land out. It was a, quite a nice field. I, I picked it out, took all my time, uh, was looking down on it, and it looked like a, a perfect field. And then I touched down, and I thought I, I should maybe drive towards the end of the field so that the retrieve is, uh, is a bit easier. But then I saw I was going, I, I would say, 40 kilometers an hour. And three meters in front of me, there was this stick, this metal pole. It was very tiny. Uh, there was also this this thread. I think it was electrical fence uh, for the cows, and it hit my glider as soon as I saw it, pretty much. And the rope actually went around the glider, so there was yeah, just minor damage uh, on the wing. Uh, but this this thread also cut itself into my wing, uh, so it was nothing that we couldn't fix. It was fixed within a day, and the glider flew two days later. But that made me realize that was one of these moments where I realized, oh yeah, these things also do happen. It was a bit unfortunate. I don't think I, I could have done anything else to, to prevent that. But still it was quite memorable because it makes you alert of that that landing out is, is something strange that you're doing and you can damage your glider of course. And then another very positive one. I was flying my uh, my first competition and I had to land out somewhere in, uh, in Germany and I remember doing my traffic pattern over a city over a small a small village actually. So as soon as I touched down, I saw pretty much the whole village coming my way. Uh, and I had talks with, with everyone from the village. Uh, the farmer uh, came to me with, uh, with some beers. Uh, they asked the local reporter to, uh, to ask me some questions. So I think I was 18 at the time. So I did this interview in German and <laughs> it didn't work out at all. My German was the worst they've, they've probably heard around there. But that was so much fun because there were so many people interested in the glider. That was really uh, quite an amazing outlanding. Nice. 
Wow, that's awesome. So can you share with us a little bit about the glide report that you fly out of most often? It's always really interesting to hear about different types of operations around the world. Yeah, I fly at a, a former airbase. It's called uh, Vliegbasis Delen. And I think it's located in, in probably the most beautiful place in uh, in the Netherlands. It's uh, National Park de Hoge Veluwe, uh, which is slightly elevated. Uh, in the Netherlands, slightly elevated means about 80 80 meters. It's uh, one of the highest points that we uh, we have in the Netherlands. And it was built by the Germans in the Second World War. Uh, so you still see some, uh, some artifacts from that uh, back at our field. So for example, there are these farms. So when you drive onto the, to the airbase, you see all these farm-like houses. But then when you go into that, it's where we had our, uh, our hangars, you see that the walls are four to five meters thick. So they're actually bunkers. So these Germans, uh, you can say a lot about them, but not that they weren't smart. Uh, they built these houses to look like farms so that uh, when the English uh, would bomb uh, the airbase, they would think that these were real farms. So it's always cool to see these uh, these artifacts. And it's also quite huge. So the main area is as big as, uh, as Schiphol, Schiphol Center. So we really have a, a lot of space uh, to fly. Nice. Sounds beautiful. Yeah, it is. You should come visit. Oh, that would that would be great. I actually have a cousin there in the Netherlands, so oh, how nice! Might be able to work something out. <laughs> and the show is proud to announce yet another new sponsor. Wings and Wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for more than thirty years now. They have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplanes and soaring supplies in the U.S. Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same day shipping. They are proud to be the exclusive American representative. For HPH LTD, manufacturer of the finest quality sailplanes. The HPH Twin Shark is the newest 20-meter two-place sailplane on the market and arriving in North America this spring. Their staff has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes. Staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call. Located in Eagle, Idaho, Wings and Wheels has a new commercial building with warehouse built to their specifications and completed in 2021. Whether shipping domestic or international, your soaring-related supply list is covered. Come visit them next time you are in the Boise area. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. And through the end of May, if you use the promo code POD2021, you'll get a free 8-inch sailplane decal with your order. We're stoked to have them on board the pod and thank them for their support. One of the goals here on the show is to, of course, help grow the sport of soaring around the world. What are some of the things you've seen or people you've met in the last few years that are helping to work in this direction? And do you have any suggestions for the community on maybe how we could do better in growing the sport? Well, Chuck, you're, you're an example of this as well, of course. <laughs> so no, I think we already talked about this uh, a few moments ago that I really enjoy the gliding community and you see so many initiatives uh, around the world now. So, so these podcasts, I think they really help to, to bring the community together and to showcase uh, some, amazing, uh, some amazing things that are happening within our community. Uh, but also the YouTubers. I mean, I'm one of them, but of course we have Stefan Langer, we have Bruno Vessel, but there's also a lot of smaller YouTubers who make all these great videos. The Instagram community is growing. I do a lot of uh, Instagram there and there's so many people messaging me and giving tips and I would say it's such a positive positive community so these things are are really amazing 
But what I really hope is that we can also, that we become better in showing the outside world how cool gliding is. So it's it's a difficult thing. I always struggle with this as well. It takes, uh, before you explain uh, someone what a competition flight is, it, it usually takes about uh, five minutes before they understand uh, the concept. But it would be good if we show to the outside world what we're doing. So a great example is the, the Sailplane Grand Prix uh, videos that we see. So I think it's an amazing concept, the Sailplane Grand Prix, but the live streams they do are, are really, really cool. And I think they really help us to, to reach this external, uh, external audience. And I hope that in a few years time, maybe we'll see live streams from inside the cockpit. So we'll see uh, commentators joining the cockpit uh, maybe get these uh, aerial views from another helicopter. That would be totally awesome. And I think we can really get the others, the outside uh, world, also into gliding. Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah, that would be great. Is there a particular mentor or instructor in your soaring history that particularly stands out? Maybe you can share some thoughts there, Simon. Oh, there have been a few. Yeah, great question. There's, uh, I think my club uh, isn't so focused on, on competition flying. Definitely when, when I started, uh, there were just a few people that, uh, that did these competition flights. And they were really a great example of, of, of things you can achieve. There was a, a guy, Nick, in my, uh, in my club who uh, joined the Dutch junior gliding team. And when I saw him fly one of their planes, I, I, I was hooked on that and, and wanted to do that as well. So he's been a great example. Uh, but I also have to name uh, some of the instructors there was one instructor who, when I was doing my first competition, said, well, I'll be your crew, uh, so I'll help you with that. And that really allows you to, to make a big step. So these, these first cross-country flights, if you have a, a good crew member, uh, someone who is willing to explain you what the day is going to bring, the, the weather forecast, that really allows you to make these, uh, these big steps. So they've been incredibly helpful. Is there anybody else maybe at your home club or someone you've raced against or flown with or family that you'd like to give a shout out? Well, I, I think gliding is, is full of amazing people. I've met some, uh, some amazing figures uh, throughout the years, uh, but I think it would be fair to, uh, to thank some of the people who like to watch my videos and who didn't, <laughs> who didn't judge from the first day onwards because, of course, it's a bit strange to just start filming yourself and put on this English accent and uh, yeah, and make make all these videos. But there's so many people who have been so positive uh, and who have given me these chances to to either work with other companies or fly gliders or introduce me to someone that could help me in, in one, one shape or another. So I think if I could do a shout out, then it's to those people, those people who have been uh, such a positive support from the start. This is kind of along the same line, but... Who in the soaring world, whether still with us or that have passed, do you admire most? Oh, oh that's a good question. Um, well, there, I think there's some something to admire in, in, in so many pilots. There's a, a few, if I look at Sebastian Cava, for example, who has had so many uh, world championships titles, I think that is quite admirable. But we also have these, these long-time instructors who, who managed to, to maintain this same level of enthusiasm uh, throughout several years of, of instructing. So that has also been quite an inspiration for me. Uh, so it's it's difficult to choose one here, actually, uh, Chuck. That's a difficult question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there are a lot. <laughs> yeah, I think I can uh, highlight uh, another person who uh, 
uh, we, we were talking about the the 2G flight, right? Right. Uh, that I did in Denmark. In that same weekend, and I made another video about that as well, we flew the Kranich, which which was a, uh, a German trainer aircraft that was also used during the Second World War. And the pilot was Dieter, Dieter Betts. And he told this story. First, he told me that he was flying the old-timers. Uh, but as the day progressed, we heard more and more stories. And he was this real adventurer flying in all the best places in the world. He went to Omerama in New Zealand. He flew there as an instructor for a couple of years. Then he talked a bit about South America, I think, but he also did this boat trip. So I should really talk to him a lot more because I, I think I heard only half of his stories, uh, but he was really uh, quite an inspiration of what an aviation career can be. Oh, I love those stories. You know, you, you could sit for hours and listen that some of those guys have so many and so much knowledge. You just want to sit there and pick their brain. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. I completely agree. So what motto or mantra best captures you, Simon? Oh, ooh. <laughs> by, by, by the way, Chuck, do you hear these uh, church bells in the background? Or? I, I don't. I wish I did, though. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. I live in the, in this, in the city center of, uh, of Delft, which is quite a historic center. Uh, and I, I just noticed that the, the church has been doing this, I think, whole, the whole podcast. So oh, nice. I hope uh, it won't be of any trouble to you. Uh, not at all. That's awesome. Oh, a motto. That's that's difficult. I think the motto for the for the YouTube channel has always been to enjoy what you are doing and make something that you want to make. So a great example is that the YouTube algorithm sometimes forces you to, to make these short videos or these very exciting videos. But I'm not sure I, I want to do that. I want to make these long, almost documentary type, a bit too dramatic shots. Uh, and videos. So I, I learned in the past year that maybe you should stick to that. Just stick to what you're doing and then it also goes a lot um, easier. So do what you love and then fix all the things around that uh, uh, later on. But most important, it's most important to uh, to do what you love. Absolutely. I think everything comes through. If you do what you love, you know, it, it kind of speaks for itself. You can tell you're having a lot of fun when you watch your videos and that that's really cool. Thanks so much, Chuck. And, you know, that's positivity is contagious. Yeah, indeed. And it, it, it makes you it helps you to do these things as well. They just go a lot easier when you when you do what you love. Of course, you have to make it work, but do what you love and then the rest comes after. Absolutely. OK, Simon, it's time to have some fun. It's our lightning round. Are you ready? I'm in lightning mode. Let's do it. <laughs> All right, let's do it. If you're looking for good lift, would you rather follow a vulture, a hawk or a condor? Uh, a hawk, because they're badass. Nice. <laughs> Ventus 3 or ASG 29? Ventus 3. <laughs> Ventus 3. <laughs> flaps or no flaps? Oh, uh, flaps. Convergence or ridge? Convergence. We don't have ridges. Fly cross country or stay close to home? Cross country, of course. Bucket hat, baseball cap, bandana, or none of the above? Uh, bucket hat, but not voluntary. <laughs> Water bottle or camelback? Camelback. 15 meter or 18 meter? Ooh, for now, 15 meter. Metal gliders or wooden gliders? Wooden gliders, though I really love the Blanik. I really have a soft spot for it. Vario sound on or off in sync? On, of course. Polarized sunglasses or non-polarized? Non-polarized. Every glider pilot should know that. P-tube or P-bag or diaper? P-tube or P-bag? Uh, P-bag, I think. No, P-tube. 
So it's connected, right? It's connected. B-tube. <laughs> <laughs> what is the biggest or heaviest item in your Landau kit? Oh, I don't carry that much. I think it's a battery pack. Oxygen above 5,000, 10,000, always or never really need for normal conditions where you fly? Well, I wish I needed oxygen in, uh, in the regions where I fly. Flight plepper. <laughs> Flight. <laughs> Flight preparation. Yeah. You can do it, Chuck. Flight preparation. Day before, morning of, and what are the things you most commonly forget over the years? Uh, the day of. Uh, the forecast is more accurate and I can't, I don't do it the day before. And um, I always forget everything. People who know me know that I, uh, I tend to forget pretty much everything. That sounds like me. <laughs> <laughs> we connect here. Favorite soaring book? Oh, it's Competing in Gliders, Winning with Your Mind by Ricky and Leo Brigiadori. Great insights. Oh, nice. Let's check that one out. What would you value more? Win a contest or set a record? Win a contest. Okay, so land out. You have two options. Busy, towered, class Charlie regional airport or relatively short but probably landable farmer's field far off the beaten track. Well, let's let's stay out of trouble and choose the farmer's field, though I think the airport would be quite fun. You have to land out. Slight uphill with 15-knot tailwind or slight downhill with 15-knot headwind. Oh, uh, what is a hill? We don't have those in the Netherlands. <laughs> <laughs> Emergency, you have two options. Jump out with a parachute or land in a lake. Land in a lake. I would love to try it, but without any consequences, hopefully. When do you check the pressure in the main tire? Per flight, per day, per month, per season, or when it looks low? I would say before the competition. That's the best moment. What music do you associate with soaring? Classical, opera, rock, hip-hop, or do you just like the, the beat of the chirping vario? Well, when I, when I started uh, making videos for YouTube, it was Sail by Owl Nation. You know, that was the, the go-to video, to put, the go-to music to put under your gliding videos. Nice. So that, uh, when I hear that music, I always think of, of gliders racing along a ridge, making low passes, and uh, these awesome images of, uh, of our sport. All right, Simon. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. Thank you, Chuck. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. It was great to have you on the podcast. Oh, that was fun. Feathered avatars. To the mythic condor, Pelicans are the largest birds in North America. Glistening white with black wingtips, they have a span of nearly 10 feet and can weigh over 20 pounds. Enormous flocks, properly called squadrons, pass through our corner of the Mojave, northwest every spring, southwest every fall, across wide stretches of desert between waters where they feed. For reasons only they could know, they skirt right by our local mountains, and never utilize a tremendous lift there. For them, it seems more about course line than local geography. When they stop to thermal, pelicans form into huge silvery spheres like holograms of bubbles in the sky, slowly pulsing from light to dark to light as they rotate in mass. Tempting though it is to fly near migrating birds, get a closer look and share in their lift, chasing them is a bad idea. 
and risk of collision is not the only issue. Anytime I've tried to join flocking birds, they break formation and flee, some even reversing course to form up again only after I've fallen behind or below. They're on tight budgets of fuel and time and can't afford to waste either by dodging fools like us. We should appreciate this and leave them to their far more serious business. Better from every perspective, to simply follow along at a respectful distance, let them navigate, and enjoy the show. Also, pilots should know to never fly directly under birds of any species, because their first defensive instinct is to die. I was giving a double ride one day when we sighted a squadron of pelicans gliding along their migratory route as usual. Off to the side, one individual was flying alone, and my passengers wanted a better look. I tried to overtake it, but was unable to stay up level, so as we drew close, I cracked spoilers to allow plenty of room below. Twenty feet should be enough, I thought. And then we saw just how maneuverable even a giant bird can be. In half a second, the pelican folded its wings, rolled inverted, and spread them again as it dove toward us. It seemed for a moment we'd have a pelican break all over our nose and leading edges. But before I could respond in any way, it had shot from above to below, so close we actually felt its tail brush our wheel. Horrified that the bird may have been injured, I snapped a turn to see but we next saw it flapping hard to form back up with its mates and regain security of numbers. Showing with birds is a sacred privilege, and we need to remember that it's their sky, not ours. To them, we're an anomaly, intruders at best, and mar their perfection every time we intrude. We must be careful not to act as invaders. But what if they approach us? One unforgettable day, we were already circling in a predictable manner, imposing no threat when what seemed at least a hundred pelicans swirled up from below. For one long, dreamlike minute of fog and enormous white wings floated all around us, above and below, ahead and behind, so thick we could hardly see through beyond them, wafting silently inside a feather pillow, falling dizzily upward more aloft by avatars. Soon they climbed high enough and gone for the climbed high and gone away for the season. But the goosebumps, wow. That may be the single most gratifying encounter I've ever had in the sky, made possible simply because we allowed them to initiate contact. Thank you, Dale, for sharing another great story with us. We now join Bob Armstrong at his grass strip in his hangar beside the Potomac River as we stand and chat beside his fully restored 1946 Schweitzer SGU-119. And while at Oshkosh, um, they have the judging requirement at Oshkosh to be eligible for judging. It can be trailered or trucked in, but it has to be flown while it's there. Okay, wow. To be eligible to be judged. Yeah. Well, we knew the judges from all the antique airplanes we had restored. They knew us. Right. And um, the question was, are you going to fly it? Well, we didn't have but the glider there. So I was watching for somebody with a suitable tow plane. And one day, Dad and I were sitting in lawn chairs under the wing out on the 
flight line, sitting in the shade of the wing, and a young man came by and he was really looking the glider over intensely. And then he happened to mention he was from Illinois and he's a member of a glider club and he tows with his J3 Cub. I think it had a C85 or a C90 in it. And of course I perked up and I asked him, do you have the Cub here? And he did. And I said, is the hitch on it? And it is. And I said, you need to sit down and we'd like to talk to you. And so the story was, you know, the EA is hoping we can fly it. We'd like to fly it. We could be eligible for judging. And he was all about it. They wanted to do a photo op. So the EA had to coordinate with the FAA to get us a time slot. Unfortunately, it was in the morning hours, like at 10 a.m. And uh, but but I flew it on on a, behind a Cub built nice. probably in 1946 also. So everything looked right, and it was a yellow Cub, and the the glider is. A and yellow also. So after a fluid, the judges kept coming around. And we knew the routine. They, they use a score sheet at Oshkosh. Everybody that shows a vintage flying machine starts with 100 points. And then they go through each page of the scoring sheets, and certain things are deducted. If you don't have the right make and model horsepower engine, you lose so many points. Right. It's all spelled out in, in the way they run the program. Well, the judges kept coming back. And we knew about the judging format qualifications. This being a glider, and the format has questions about firewall forward. And one day I asked one of the judges, are we creating a problem for you having this glider here? I've flown it. It's now qualified to be judged. It's a vintage flying machine, and we're being judged in the vintage aircraft sector of EAA. This episode is sponsored by the Southern California Soaring Academy, a 501c3 nonprofit organization located in the high desert of Los Angeles, California. Soaring Academy is dedicated to growing the sport of soaring with young people through its 8th grade STEM outreach programs and giving back to PTSD-afflicted veterans during private monthly events. Flight lessons and mountain soaring are available year-round to the general public, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. To learn how you can get involved, check them out on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at Soaring Academy or online at SoCalSoaringAcademy.com. Dot org. And they, the answer was, every morning, I think it is, they have a judging standards committee meeting. And he said, yesterday's meeting was all about you guys and this glider. Very nice. And he said, when, we, when the procedures were set up, there's the gold level Lindy, then the silver, and then there's a bunch of bronze, smaller stature, bronze Lindy's. And some of the bronze lindies go to the best in certain horsepower class. Every one of them says, like, best 0 to 65 horsepower, best 0 to 85. And he said, we never thought about it, but any one of those trophies, because it says 0, right. could qualify for a glider. But we didn't fit the, the judging sheet because there's questions about the engine. Okay. So they had to make some adjustments, and we didn't know what was going to happen. Well, as it turned out, we got a bronze Lindy, and it's inscribed Grand Champion Glider. It was the first vintage glider ever judged at Oshkosh. 
there had been other vintage gliders shown at Oshkosh, and I've been there when there have been, but they never flew. Therefore, they were never eligible to be judged. We came away home with, away with the experience of thinking, maybe we're going to start something, because EA's main magazine is called Sport Aviation, right. in quotation marks. Yeah. Uh, glider flying is all about, more so than any other facet of recreational flying, is more about sport aviation than anything else. Exactly, yeah. And we came away thinking, well, maybe we'll have started something because they're gonna, they took pictures and they're gonna have something in the magazine about it. And maybe we'll start something and you'll start seeing more vintage gliders shown at Oshkosh. We'd seen at Harris Hill some really amazing flying machines, mini MOAs, et cetera, um, that you never saw at Oshkosh. And we thought, well, you know, this is something maybe good that we're going to have started by going to the trouble of trailering this to Oshkosh on an open trailer, by the way, wow. which going around the loop of Chicago yeah. was horrendously awful. Well, that was the hope, but it never really materialized. Yes, the SSA has a, a booth there, and there's some gliders displayed, but I haven't seen in my recent years the influx of the vintage gliders. And there, well, a few years ago, there was the Wham uh, Warbirds, the, uh, the, the Aronka and the Piper training gliders were trailered in from Oregon, or no, well, that's in uh, Washington State, Hood River. Okay. And they flew and parked with the Warbirds. I don't know if they were judged. The Warbirds kind of do their own thing yeah. in judging. But anyway, that's the Schweitzer 119. Open cockpit looks very nice, very very well restored. I mean, uh, once again, I'll put some pictures on the website, but it it's just it's pristine. I mean, it's it's absolutely beautiful, and it well, must be it, a lot of fun to fly. It is. When it was first finished, uh, I rented a tea hanger at the Cumberland Airport, one of the old tea hangers that they just tore down. Yeah. Uh, and we started training through Marvin Holland. Uh huh. He was our flight instructor. We had to get our glider add-on, and uh, we did the training in the 233 that the club still has. Yes. My dad soloed in it, and I told Marvin early on, he knew my involvement with the antiques. And I'd flown quite a variety of old flying machines. And I told him, Marvin, it's your decision, but I know I will train with you in the 233, but I would really, really like to make my first glider solo in my 119. Yes. And that's exactly what he allowed me to do. This soaring safety segment is brought to you by Aerox Aviation Oxygen Systems. Aerox, number one in portable and engineered oxygen systems. Your source for FAA-approved oxygen mask and portable oxygen systems. Aerox now introduces the Aerox Pro 2 Plus Flight Bag Portable Oxygen System. Small, lightweight, and simple to use. The Pro 2 Plus is perfect for the occasional user who wants the flexibility to access higher altitudes without worry about flying impaired. Now available at Aerox Distributors and at Aerox.com. Aerox, engineered for aviators. Be a confident pilot and always do the checks step by step. Have a checklist. Please do not memorize the check procedures because eventually we will forget it one day. 
And we have to often practice emergency maneuvers, like what happens if a rope breaks, and we have to recreate those scenarios and always do some outside landing, like try to make the scenario and try to practice a lot. And the most important thing, to not stop flying and fly often and practice more. Take participate even in flying events if the time and money permits you. We're excited to bring you yet another new segment to the podcast, and that is our listener logbook. Yes, you can now share your story on a new episode of the podcast. We made it super easy for you. Just get on your smartphone or computer, click the link in the show notes, and record your soaring story. You can also go to SoaringTheSky.com and just click the Contact Us and hit the microphone. Chris from California now is going to show you how it's done by sharing one of his stories. I had completed my solo in November of 2018 for some time at this point in my 2019 midsummer flying out of 29 Palm Soaring. The summer heated desert thermals were booming with obvious beautiful cumulus clouds scattered about the eastern Morongo Basin Desert. I was flying the Club 233 and had over 55 hours under my belt at this point, so I was feeling quite confident in my flying ability and general know-how, but not yet a PPG, so I still felt some trepidation about going too far astray from home. When I hit that golden thermal on this day, it took me from the 4000 release MSL to a rapid and exhilarating 10,000 plus, I thought, geez, my house is only five miles away. 10,000 plus is certainly enough to get me there and back, assuming the 20 to ILD of a Schweitzer 233 that equals 264 feet per mile, plus 100 feet for margarine, that's 364. Round up to a nice even 400 just for good luck, thus five miles times four, that's 20, plus zero zero equals 2,000 MSL needed to go to my house in another 2,000 return. Then calculating, of course, field is 2,000 MSL, so 2 plus 2 plus 2 plus 2,000 for pattern, that's 8,000 feet. I'm at 10 plus. Loads of spare fuel. So off I went heading west towards Flat Lizard Ranch, my desert hideout just 5 miles away. As I followed the Cloud Street down valley and along the base of 29 Mountain in Joshua Tree National Park, I was even more excited as I began to continue to climb, gaining two to three hundred feet while flying straight ahead. This is the baby, it doesn't get any better than this, I thought. I was getting giddy at this point. Was I in convergence? Or was I just bumping from one thermal to another? I didn't really care at this point as I skipped along at best LD of 50 to 52 and still gaining altitude or maintaining my, my nice 10,000 safe altitude. Of course, I was keeping an eye on the cloud base and the usual concern about getting sucked into the clouds and making sure that I kept my legal and safe distance from clouds. 152 ABH I repeated in my head. I finally began to maintain at about 10,200 and kept heading west toward my home. Once I identified the, my home down below and I was sure I still had return glide altitude, being still at 10,000 feet over home, I turned 180 and headed back to the base only stopping once to thermal a bit more just for the fun of it all. Arriving at 29 Airport, still at 6,000 feet, it took some major forward slipping and full spoilers to actually get down into pattern altitude. A nice, smooth, clean landing was made, and I greeted my soaring pal, who was next, in line to go up and said to him, Go get it. It's just booming out there. 
hope you can get back down. But by the time he made it off the ground and released, the weather had quickly overdeveloped. Thus, he ended up coming back down in short notice. I felt quite sorry for him, but I was still grinning ear to ear. Thank you, Chris, for sharing your story and showing us how easy it really is. Don't be shy. I know a lot of you are getting some great flights. We would love to hear about them here on the podcast. This is your podcast, so let's fill it up with some great content. Thanks again for listening and continuing to support the show. Until next time, stay healthy, stay safe, and happy soaring. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.